Have you ever wondered what happens to a marriage between two people who dated and loved one another and spent time together and the wedding day that is so joyous and so earnest and so sincere and the day that they sign the divorce papers? How does that happen? Or the day that a child is born with all the joys and the bonds of love raising them up, nourishing them, and the day the parents stand face-to-face with that teenager, both of them wishing they could end their relationship with one another. How does that happen? Or when people get older and their parents or close loved ones are diagnosed with an awful condition, and the day that loved one who they cherished and loved becomes a burden to them. How do these things happen? In each case, whether divorced spouses, frustrated parents, or burdened family members, what happens, humanly speaking, is a loss of first love. Gradually, almost unnoticed by those who are involved in these relationships or situations, what was once done with passionate fervor now becomes little more than a duty or responsibility to them. Maybe this is how some of us feel right now, whether knowing or unknowingly, about our relationship with Jesus Christ. Perhaps you are just trudging through the Christian life, just hanging on or just going through Christian duty. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, teaches us that the greatest commandment does matter to God most. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 38, Jesus identified our greatest obligation as wholehearted love towards him. He is not pleased with dutiful obedience, which does not flow from a genuine heart. For him. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Jesus mercifully reveals his glory to the church at Ephesus and summons them forth to a first love which he requires. Please open your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. The title of today's message is A Heart Checkup. For the church. It is my desire this Lord's Day to preach through this passage of Scripture, putting forth these perfect, absolute truths from our Lord Jesus Christ. Because even though these seven churches were actual and historical churches in Asia Minor, they represent the types of churches that exist throughout the entire church age. What Christ says to these seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 through 3 is relevant to us corporately as well as individually today. This is the blueprint of the church on how we are to express our love, devotion, obedience, and adoration to God. This is what pure worship looks like in the eyes of Christ. So I would ask you to please stand, if you're able, for the reading of the Word of God. 
To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. And you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You may be seated. Thank you. At the very core of what it means to be a Christian is to have a personal knowledge of Christ and to love him with a love that is vibrant and dynamic. The entire Christian life is Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Not one step of the Christian life can be lived outside of Christ or apart from Christ. We are chosen in him, predestined through him, redeemed by him, forgiven in him, made alive together with him, raised up with him, seated with him, and created in him. And the entirety of the Christian life is Christ. To have Christ, you have everything. To not to have Christ, you have nothing. The Christian life is to trust Christ, follow Christ, know Christ, serve Christ, obey Christ, and worship Christ. Christianity is not a creed, it's not a cause, it's not a church, but it is a living, saving knowledge of Christ and Him alone. Christianity is not a mere religion. No, it is a vital, personal living relationship with the risen Christ. To know Christ is to love him and to be growing in the grace and knowledge of him. But as of any relationship, our love for Christ is subject to fluctuation. Even though this relationship cannot be broken, it can suffer at times a noticeable lack of fervency and desire in one's life. Sometimes our passion for Christ explodes and we grow. And there are other times it grows stale, stagnant, mechanical, and routine at times. We can start going through the motions of Christianity without a blazing, fervent fire for Christ. 
Sadly, this is precisely what took place in the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus was a great church. They believed correctly. They served sacrificially. They defended the truth valiantly. But something over time was missing. And that which was missing was they had left their first love, Jesus Christ. They had not left it entirely, for such things are impossible. Romans 8.35 says, For nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But they had left in part. Once on fire for Christ, with their blazing passion for him, it had cooled off to a flickering flame. Yes, they were still coming to church. They were still manning their positions. They were still serving the Lord. They still believed rightly, but their hearts were not in the, in the same place. Their hearts no longer were an altar unto God, burning with a love and a passion for him. You see, their activities for Christ suppressed their intimacy with Christ. And rather their service in the church drawing them closer to Christ, it became more of a performance than worship to him. They had a lot of things on their plate. Full heads, busy feet, and yet cool hearts. The glow was gone. How about you this morning? Where are you in all of this? It is a question that I need to ask myself and all of us who are in leader positions in this church, whether elders or deacons, pastor, or any ministry in this church, because sometimes the more we're involved, we, we become in service to the Lord. There can be a sacrifice upon our own personal fellowship and communion with God. So I want to ask all of us here today, do you have a passionate love for Christ in your life? Is it dynamic? Is it driving you in service to him and to his church? Let us see how Jesus addressed this problem in the church at Ephesus and what he directed them to do in recapturing their love and zeal for him. It is these very same steps that our church today needs to follow as we commit our lives in a passionate love and sacrificial service to him. Let us bow our head and pray before we approach the word of God. Gracious Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is living and active and it is sharper than any two-edged sword and it pierces both soul and spirit and joint and marrow and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Your word is powerful, Lord. And even before each one of us, Lord, wake up this morning, what is our heart's desire to come here today? Father, I pray that this heart checkup for the church, your word, Lord God, would help us, Lord God, to focus on what we do and why we do it. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would put a passion and a zeal and rekindle the fire in our hearts for you this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Let us walk through this first of seven letters that our Lord gives us and note six points through verses one through seven. Point number one. I want us to consider the setting where this takes place. Note how verse one starts to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Ephesus was a busy, thriving metropolis in the first century. It was the New York City of Asia Minor. It was the Los Angeles, the Chicago of that day. It was the most predominant city in Asia Minor. It wasn't like a little town down the road. No, it was a booming, bustling major city. It stood at the crossroads of travel for, with four major highways that intersected in Ephesus and was located also on a major river. So it became a huge seaport with all the industry that a large city would have. And culturally, it was advanced beyond the other cities with sports, arts, drama, uh, architecture, thank you, <laughs> literature, and philosophies, and etc., etc. All of these things characterized Ephesus. This was a happening place. But with all of that came an explosion of pagan religions. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world was located right here in Ephesus. Now, the Temple of Diana was located right here. And it was an absolute cesspool of iniquity in this area. Every businessman traveling in this area would make a beeline to the temple of Diana because there were temple prostitutes, there was drunkenness, and all kinds of perverted debauchery. And it was in the middle of all of this, in the city of Ephesus, that God birthed his church. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build my church. And even the gates of Hades, even in Ephesus, will not prevail against it. You see, our Lord set up shop at the gates of hell in Ephesus. So this is the setting. And this is the city that would become the black velvet backdrop where God would place the diamond of his grace and his mercy in the lives of the saints in Ephesus. And it would be their lives that would shine brightly for his glory and for the glory of his church. Next, I want you to see point number two, the speaker. In verse one, we continue to read the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. The one mentioned here is not named. Because he needs no introduction. He does not have to be named, but only needs to be described to us. He is the one who is the head of the church and is seated at the right hand of God. The one who has appeared in chapter 1 in John's vision on the Isle of Patmos. He is the risen Christ. Please notice, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars, I believe, are the seven messengers who represent 
the seven churches. They are the teaching elder and pastor that is the primary one teaching and preaching the word of God in the church. They are the ones given the responsibility and the accountability to be the primary speaker and to minister to the congregation of God. They are the ones responsible to bring the apostles' teachings and sound doctrine. And when this letter would make its circulation around the churches to this church at Ephesus, it would be this angel. We read in verse 1, angelos, meaning messenger. Some being heavenly beings and some being earthly beings would bring forth this message from Christ to the church. You see, these angels mentioned in verse 1 cannot refer to heavenly angels because the role of an angel is never to be the leader in a church. It is Christ that holds the seven stars, these messengers, in his mighty right hand. The role of the pastor and the, te- and the elder is to shine with the glory of God. When a pastor opens the book, when he preaches Christ, when he exalts the name of Christ, he is like a star which is bursting forth, radiating the brightness and the glories of God. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. He, God, has chosen them by himself and for himself. He holds them in his right hand in that they have the strictest accountability to him, and he places them where he desires for them to serve. He holds them, meaning he protects them. He shields them. He guards them. He upholds them and sustains them. And, the, and no one can touch them through his mighty right hand. Yes, he holds us all in his hand, but especially those who he has appointed to preach his word. Think about the people who we elevate in this world. Sports stars, Hollywood stars, movie stars, all these people we elevate. And yet look who God elevates. Look who God lifts up. God has chosen these men, these men that he has set apart to be stars. And we should hold them and cherish them as those who God has given us as a gift. As they labor for Christ and his church laboring over the word of God and laboring in the lives of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Please notice, secondly, it is he, Christ, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And here is the role of the church, to be the lampstand. The church is not the light. It is the lampstand that holds the light. And this is our primary ministry as the lampstand, the church. It is to shine with the light of truth, the word of God, and the glories of Christ in this dark and sinful world. And the church is fulfilling her ministry by putting forth the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And the one who said, let there be light, is the one who shines forth through the witness and the testimony and the teaching and preaching in the lives of the saints 
that are in his church. He walks through the seven lampstands, meaning he is always on site. He is always on location. He is always inspecting and and directly involved in the life of the church. He is never more nearer than when he is the mist of the golden lampstands. This is his bride and his church, which he has purchased with his own precious blood. He walks the aisles. He visits the Sunday school classes. He sits in the elders and deacons meetings for the sake of his holy name. This risen Christ audits every ministry, every activity, and every person involved in the life of the church. There are no secrets hidden from him. He overhears every conversation. He hears every sermon and every lesson given in his church. He is constantly inspecting, assessing, evaluating, and judging the hearts and the motives of those who are in his church. You see, he is not distant or disconnected from the life of the church. He is the life of the church. And I want to say, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, when we gather together and come under the teaching and the preaching of the word of God, when we are gathered for prayer and study and for any ministry in this church, it is he that is tapping us on the shoulders. It is he that is tugging on our hearts. It is he that is bringing conviction of sin and causing us to repent and to be restored to God. And he is doing this through the seven stars. Those who he has risen, raised up and set apart for his truth, for his glory, and for his church. Wow. What a calling. What a calling for each one of us. Whether we're an elder, pastor, deacon, involved in any ministry in this church, whether we're greeting people at the front door, we are representatives and ambassadors of Jesus Christ. And we are putting out display his glory and his mercy and his grace to all who see us. We need to pray for those who are leading ministries and involved in this church. We need to encourage them. Say encouraging words to them. Come alongside them. Co-labor with them. Hold them accountable. These are God's chosen people. This is Christ's church that he shed his blood for. I want you to see in this rich passage of scripture, point number three, the strengths in the church at Ephesus. The strengths. In verses two and three, there are many strengths mentioned. We see through chapters two and three, in contrast to the other six churches mentioned, this church was a signature church. This is one extraordinary church. In verses 2 and 3, there is not one word of rebuke. There is not one word that is negative. It is all amens from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I know your deeds, plural. This was a dynamic church with a dynamic ministry for Christ. These were hard-working believers. And by the way, we are created in the image of God. 
We who are here on this earth and bear his image and know him personally have been assigned to things to do. We are to glorify God by carrying out these assignments and these duties that he has given us to do. I mean, look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And as long as we are here upon this earth, there's a work yet to be done for his kingdom and for his glory on this earth. We never retire from the Lord's work. We may retire from the police force. We may retire from the utility. But we never retire from the kingdom of God. And as long as we're here on this earth and breathing, our work here is not yet finished. He says to the church, I know your deeds. And when he says this, he means it in an affirming way. He goes on to say to them, I know your deeds and your toil. The word toil, kapos, in the Greek meaning to labor to the point of exhaustion. This was not a church that was just serving God when it was convenient. It wasn't an option. No, these were spiritual marines. They were the few, the proud, the Ephesians. And when they had a work day, the whole church showed up. They were all putting their shoulder to the plow and not looking back. This church was serving, doing, and going to the point of exhaustion for the Lord Jesus Christ. We see the word perseverance following this description in their labor for Christ. Meaning when they started a task, they didn't stop until it was finished. When they served the Lord in whatever capacities God had assigned for them to do, according to the gifts that they received, they did their very best for the Lord. Why? Because they knew it would bring most glory to God. Whenever you're doing anything for our Lord. Matthew 5.16, right? Let your light so shine among men that they will see your good works and do what? Glorify your Father in heaven. And the verse continues on. Jesus says, and you could not tolerate evil men. They had a zero tolerance policy for evil men. This was a church that had a high godly standard, and rightly so. They weren't inclined, as many churches today, to lower the bar so everyone can feel comfortable in the church. No, this church was, was placed holiness and righteousness of God. It was emphasized here in the church at Ephesus. They were a church that did not accept habitual sin in one's life because they understood that a little leaven ruins a whole loaf. There is no doubt they must have exercised church discipline and in love would confront people in their sin with two or three witnesses, hoping and praying for repentance and restoration. They purged out the evil men so that they could keep the church pure and holy 
unto the Lord. This was not a worldly church. And the verse continues on by saying, and you put to test those who called themselves apostles. When outside Bible teachers would come to this church, they didn't automatically fill the pulpit. They were tested regarding their doctrine. They wanted the T's crossed and the I's dotted concerning the truths of God's word. And rightly so. It is God's word. I guess you could say they were theologically discriminating. And in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, the elder is to teach sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That's what they were doing here in the church at Ephesus. And look what Christ says. And you put to test those who, will call, who called themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. This was pleasing to Christ. This church was a beacon for the truth and orthodoxy. You see, a church that stands theologically and doctrinally for nothing will fall for everything. Look at the resume of this church. It's impressive. It was founded by Paul. They were discipled by Aquila. They were taught by Apollos. They were pastored by Timothy. They were instructed by John. Imagine those pictures in the hallway of your church. And either directly or indirectly, they were the recipients of eight New Testament books. Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, Revelation, and even 1st Corinthians was written from Ephesus by Paul on his second missionary journey. Look at verse 3. And we see there the word perseverance again. Meaning, they weren't a bunch of quitters. They had perseverance. They would not waver in their ministry, mission, and message. Even though they lived in the heart of paganism, they held up with boldness the truths of God's word, bearing witness and giving testimony to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of verse 3, we read, And have endured for my name's sake, and have not grown weary. Through persecution, through false teaching, and being planted right in the middle of a pagan society, they persevered, they endured, and did not grow weary. This is some kind of church. They were strong, sound, and steadfast. They had everything going for them, except the one main thing. And you know, you can hit the ball real hard, and you knock it right over the fence. But if you miss first base, it's all for nothing. You're out. They were deficient in job number one. Point number four, the sin. Look at verse four. But I have this against you. These words from Christ send a bone-chilling feeling up our spines. To have read and studied all these great things this church was doing, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, honoring and glorifying Christ in his word. And now he says, 
but I have this against you. No doubt the Ephesians swallowed hard here. As Jesus says, but I have this against you, you have left your first love. See, they still loved Christ. However, all their deeds, all their ministries, all that they were and are doing was not flowing out of a love and a passion and a zeal for Christ. You see, this didn't happen overnight or they would have noticed. But instead, this happened, as the verb tense would indicate, after a long period of time. They had left their first love. In the midst of all their ministries and their unwavering stand for the truth of God's word, their heart had grown cold. That's why Jesus says, And the busier they became, the further away they drifted from their singular devotion to Christ. What is first love? First love is fervent. It's red hot. It's passionate. It's like that of a newly wed couple. We can relate to this, can't we? It pictures the romantic love of two people when they, when they experience love for one another. When they first meet and start pursuing one another to become married. You know, they, they can't stay off the phone with each other. They're always together. They're either texting or Skyping or they just never can be apart. It's passionate. It's intense. It's intimate in nature. This is what first love is. This is how our love for Christ should be. It should be above everything else. They just love to be together. This was was happening in the church of Ephesus upon its birth many years before this letter was written. They had that intimate, passionate zeal for Christ. But as in any marriage or relationship, things start to change along the way. Children may come along, careers take off, businesses expand, activities increase, The stress of life is multiplied and suddenly two people wake up as strangers. I mean, they're still married under the law and live together. They're still bound together, but their hearts were a long way apart. This is exactly what was happening spiritually in the church at Ephesus. And Jesus captures it in this analogy, in this metaphor. When he says you left your first love, in other words, what he is saying is you left me. Their devotion for Christ cooled off. Their ministry had turned mechanical. Their relationship with Christ had become routine. They had become a what had become is a sad similarity in their worship and and in their understanding of Scripture. You see, they were still going to church. They were still serving. They still believed correctly, but their hearts were no longer in it as it was in the beginning. There was much knowledge and activity for Christ, yet not much intimacy for Christ. They had full heads, busy feet, empty hearts, and all of this had occurred over some period of time. Can we relate to this? I doubt there is anyone in this room that can't relate to this 
in some degree or another. It is, it is part of being in a relationship. This is why we love one another. This is why we serve the church. This is why we labor for the gospel. This is why we study God's word. It is to know him and to love him. And everything that we are and all that we are doing and all that consumes our lives each day of our lives must flow from a heart that loves Christ. We must focus on this all the time. Or it can come slowly creeping into our hearts and steal from us the pure reason and object of our worship, Jesus Christ. I know myself personally, I need to do this every day before I come, every Sunday before I come to church. I need to get right before I walk in those doors. I have to understand in my heart, my mind, why I'm coming to church on Sunday. It is to worship my God. And when I get that right in my heart and mind and I put my focus on Christ, I am truly blessed and I am truly drawn closer to Christ. Our greatest act of obedience to Christ is to love him with all our being. Maybe out of being so busy in life, maybe in serving the church, maybe dealing with difficulties in others' lives, noble as these things are, we can lose sight of why we are doing the things we do. Maybe you have been on the receiving end of hurtful words or disappointments from others or frustrated with the day-to-day grind of being a Christian and living the Christian life at work or living with an unsaved one. We can grow weary and forget the reason why we labor and toil and pick up our cross and follow him. So how does one turn this around in their lives? How does one who has noticed the flame and the fire growing dim in their walk with Christ reignite the flame of passion and zeal in their lives? What steps do we take to get this back in our lives? Point number five, the instruction and warning. Our great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, now gives us three steps of instruction and one warning found in verses five through six. He takes us from the sin in verse four to the solution in verse five and six. Step number one. He says in this text, remember. Please look at verse five. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen. This is full throttle for Christ. Can you remember when Christ met you and where he met you in your life? Can you remember that day that God opened your eyes to see who you were and to see his love and his mercy towards you? Can you go back and remember that day when he met you where you are and he lifted you up and he drew you to himself? He revealed his love for you and his care for you and the day that you committed yourself to Christ. This is step number one. We can never forget where the Lord met us, how he saved us, how he filled us with his love and care for us. Step number two, repent. The text goes on to say, therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent. Ask the Lord to give you a changed heart 
and a changed mind. Ask him to help you be sensitive to sin and quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. Make him part of everything in your life. Recommit your life to Christ today. I remember as a new believer walking past a whole wall of copy paper. And I was out at home. I didn't have any money in my pocket. It was really important that I print something out the next day. I grabbed a thing of paper and I started to walk out of the building. I couldn't get to the car before the Holy Spirit brought conviction of that sin. I was stealing. You know, you can justify it to yourself. Well, I work hard here. I put an extra half hour in last week. You know, I do more than everybody else. I deserve this. The Holy Spirit don't let you get away with that because you're sensitive to sin. How to put that paper back. And that sensitivity to sin, we can't forget that. We can't grow hard and insensitive to the things that nailed our Savior to the cross. Ask the Lord to give you a sensitivity to sin. Quick to repent and be restored to Christ. Step number three, repeat. Therefore, remember where you have fallen, repent, and do the deeds you did at first. You see these words, and do the deeds you did at first. That's repeat. That's going back, doing what you used to do when you first got saved. What are those deeds you did at first? Well, the text does not say. However, I believe Christ knew, his church knew exactly what they meant. It's Christianity 101, which the rest of the Bible does speak about. Turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. Peter preaches the gospel. He says, this Jesus who you crucified, God has raised from the dead, raised from the dead, and made him both Lord and Christ. And the passage goes on to say, when they were pierced in their hearts, they said, what must we do to be saved? Repent and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, please look at the clear teaching from Acts 2, verse 42, of the deeds that they did right after being saved by the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are the deeds each one of us who have experienced a true conversion experience in our lives. These are the deeds we need to repeat and go back to doing with a fervent love and passion for Christ. Look at verse 42. Four points of application to returning to our first love. This is Christianity 101. Point number one. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were in the Word. They were reading the Word regularly. They were meditating on the Word regularly. They couldn't wait to find out more about Christ and what He has done. 
They were constantly devoting themselves to the reading of God's word. If you're not in the word, you're not going to have a zeal and a passion and a love for Christ. This is word. He speaks to us through his word. We speak to him through prayer. There's communion. There's this relationship. Christ just doesn't come on Sunday morning and leave when we walk out the door. He's intimately part of every minute of every day in our lives because his word indwells us richly. We're constantly thinking about Christ. What's honoring to Christ? How we can be obedient to Christ. Point number two. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And point number two, and to fellowship. Stimulating each other towards obedience and the pursuit of holiness in their lives. See, this wasn't friendship. Friendship is when people come together that have all these likes. Like, uh, we work construction, we're blue-collar workers. Um, Our children are on the soccer team. Uh, We have all these likenesses, so we develop friendships. You see, fellowship is different from friendship. Fellowship, we're united by one thing, and it is Jesus Christ. That's what Christian fellowship is, is centered in. Look at this room, the differences in all of us. We're all in different places. We all have different likes, dislikes. We're all in different parts of our life. But there is one thing, there is one bond that brings us together, that causes sweet fellowship and communion and a love for one another. And that is our Lord Jesus Christ. They were committed to fellowship, to to stimulating one another in their love for Christ. Desperately needed. To have a fervent love, passion for Christ. Third point, And the breaking of bread. Looking unto Christ. Self-examination. You know, when we sit on communion Sunday and we come to the Lord's table, this is just not, you know, yes, it's reflecting on what Christ has done for us. How he died for us, how he shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, the life that he lived on our behalf, his perfect righteousness, his love, his mercy for us. But it's a time for self-examination. Right? It says, examine your heart with fear and trembling before the Lord. Examine your salvation with fear and trembling before the Lord. There's no condemnation here. This is an examination Am I putting Christ first in my life? Are my relationships people who love the Lord? Am I, am, I, am, I, am I having fellowship with God's people? Am I in God's word? Am I putting Christ first in my life? It's a time of self-examination. It's a time of intimacy at the table with our Lord Jesus Christ. Fourth point, and to prayer, talking to Christ. Sweet communion with Christ. Intimacy with Christ. Make him part of everything in our lives. You have a test tomorrow at school? Pray before the test. Ask Christ to give you knowledge and wisdom. Help you pass that test. Job interviews. I'm coming home uh, to my wife that had an argument with this this morning. Give me wisdom. Give me a love for her, Lord. Make Christ part of everything in your life. Constantly praying and being in communion with Christ. 
This is how we get back to our first love. This is how we rekindle the fire and passion for Christ in our lives. Why does this need to happen in light of these truths? Look at verse 5. I will remove your lampstand. Here is the warning. It sort of makes you think how many churches have had their lampstand removed by Christ and are just going through the motions. It's a real scary thought. In verse 6, we see, remember, repent, repeat. And now lastly, point number 6, remain. Look at verses 6 and 7. Look how our Lord sends us away from this loving rebuke. God's word says, yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Love the things God loves, hate the things God hates. He who has an ear, let him hear what the scripture says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. What Christ is saying is remain in me. Remain encouraged. Remain fighting the good fight. Overcome the trials and temptations in your life and look forward to the great reward. Eternity with Christ forever. Our Lord knows us and loves us and brings perfect biblical correction to us, which stands as a perfect model of loving correction to those who are called to lead his church. This wasn't a beat-up session. There was a purpose and a reason here. There is mercy and grace and great hope in this. This is how we are to approach one another, building one, each one of us up looking at the strengths, looking how we're glorifying Christ, and then bringing a soft, loving correction to our brother and sister in the Lord and pointing them to the great hope that we have in Christ. Have you ever wondered what happened to that fire, that zeal that once burned in your hearts for Jesus Christ? Look at verse 7. Let he who has ears, let him hear as the spirit of God speaks to the churches. May we hear the spirit of God speak through his word today and respond to this heart checkup from our great God and savior, Jesus Christ, and return with a fervent love and a passion for Christ, our all glorious, all sufficient Lord and King. I would ask you to please stand as Brother Tim leads us in our hymn titled Heart of Worship by Matt Redman. And I hope and pray today as we live out our Christian lives that we will focus and have purpose in our lives to love Christ above everything and to glorify and honor him.